The adversary. Do you do you have an adversary? Don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> well, we all have an adversary, and of course we know he's the devil, right? And uh, but we have more than one enemy. Uh, we've got the devil, and we've got the world. This godless system that hates Christians and Christianity, and hates the church, and hates the Word of God, and hates the God of the Word. And uh, then we've got our old flesh, the person living on the inside of us. There, there are lots of adversaries. And I think the worst one that we have is really the one that lives on the inside. Our old nature that, uh, that uh, is still hungering after the world, after the flesh, after the things of, of sin. And uh, you know, the devil dangles the carrot in front of our face and we, we want to chase after those things that are, are pleasing to the flesh. But... Uh, we've got to hold on. And he never said it would be easy. Uh, the hill's not going to be easy to climb. Uh, I'm sure all of those men, women, boys and girls that have fought the fights around the world for our freedom uh, climbed some hills that were hard to climb and ultimately their families uh, were left behind by a lot of them and they had to climb some hills alone. And uh, it's never easy. It's never easy to, to live the life that God has called us to live. But it's worth it. It's worth it in the long run. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 9 and uh, pretty much uh, about half, I would say, of that chapter. The first half, 25 verses or so. And I'm just going to kind of tell you a story. Very familiar story. You're, You're very familiar, I'm sure, with the Apostle Paul and uh, the life that he lived uh, as before he became Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus, and uh, he was breathing out threatenings and hatred against the church and against Christians, against Christ Himself. Uh, He held the cloak of those who stoned Christians to death and was consenting to their death. He would chase them down and in other cities and around the country and would have them arrested and beaten and thrown in prisons and sometimes even have them murdered. And uh, here is uh, the, the testimony of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. He has several uh, versions of that conversion, but, but this is a, a, a really good one. And there's some, some things that I want you to notice in these verses. Take a look at verse 1. And uh, I'm just going to read through until the Lord stops me and we'll, we'll talk. Uh, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, and now this way, we're talking about the people of the way. Jesus Christ was called the way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And, and Paul thought that was heresy. That was blasphemy to think that this man named Jesus was, was the Messiah and that he was the only way to heaven or the only way to God the Father was something that he could not stand. And, and he was a religious zealot. He was in love with God, Jehovah God, but he had no clue who the Son of God was. And he was uh, out to kill and to destroy the people of the way. And he went to uh, 
get letters that he may have the authority to go to Damascus, to the synagogues. The synagogues were where the Jews would gather. But of course, in this time, even those who had converted to Christianity and put their faith and trust in Christ, they were still showing up at the synagogues, the same way that Jesus Christ himself would go into a synagogue. And when he'd go into the synagogue, they would open the floor for him to be able to speak. Same thing they did later on with this man named Saul of Tarsus when he's converted and becomes Paul. And it says that he, if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You know, that, that pricking, those are the ox goads that they would, they would put down the, the side of the ox that was pulling the cart, and the cart was tied to him by two poles, that, and then they had a strap that went around his chest. But in, on those poles, they would tie sharp sticks that when he would walk, they would stab him in the side and encourage him to pull forward. Well, that's, that's the way the Holy Spirit of God does us. He, he, he pokes us. When we're not pulling hard enough, He pokes us. When we let go of the load that we should be carrying behind us. We as Christians have been called by God to, uh, to be pack animals, if you will. We, we've got a job to do. Uh, we've been given some ropes to pull. And we should all be pulling in the same direction. Have you ever noticed that not only within the Southern Baptist Convention or in, in even local New Testament Bible-believing churches, but in Christianity all over the world, it seems like we are so splintered that we are pulling in different directions rather than getting a hold of the ropes that God has given to us to pull on and to pull together in one direction to bring glory and honor to God. Some think this, some think that, some take this part of the Bible. And I've heard some people say we as Baptists tear out the book of Acts and throw it away. Well, I just happen to be preaching out of the book of Acts this morning. I want you to know that mine's still intact. But there are people who think that we don't, don't pay any attention to part of the Scriptures. And then other people don't pay any attention to this part. And we all have our favorites and our picks and our verses and our doctrines and the things that we like and the things that we don't like and the things that we will do and the things that we won't do and the faithfulness that we're willing to, to be. But then we you know we're just not going to be over overly zealous the way that Paul was and, and go around, you know, persecuting people that aren't living the way that we think they ought to live. Well certainly there should be a line in the sand that none of us are willing to cross when it comes to uh, being abusive to those who are without. The Bible calls them without. That means on the outside of Christendom, on the outside of the church, on the outside of faith. We want to be loving and kind and gracious and merciful. We don't want to pick up stones and stone them and send them to prison the way Paul the Apostle or Saul the, uh, the Pharisee was doing at this time, but you look at what it goes on 
to say when he was met on the road to Damascus by the Lord, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou? Well, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecuted. He said, oh no, Lord, I would never, I didn't, I was persecuting those, all those Christians. I see, when I'm persecuting them, what you're saying is I'm persecuting you. You didn't know that, didn't realize that. He said, who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to pick against the ox goads. Or against the pricking of the Holy Spirit. And he trembling in verse 6. And astonished said Lord what wilt thou have me do? Now I want you to realize something. This is the very moment that Saul of Tarsus becomes really Paul the Apostle. He's the Jew that now becomes a Christian. He is the one that confesses and repents and turns away from the lifestyle that he is living. And God has given him some new ropes to pick up and to pull in the direction that God is now calling him to pull. Oh, he's been the religious zealot. He's been the Pharisee. He's been the Old Testament teacher. One of the most brilliant minds that ever walked the face of the earth. But it's kind of like Solomon who was... Uh, he asked the Lord for wisdom. God gave him wisdom above any man on the face of the planet. He was the wisest man that ever walked the earth and became a fool. You know how he became a fool? Because he decided instead of using his wisdom for the glory and honor of God, he was going to use his wisdom to experience everything that the world had to offer. And he literally surrendered himself to the pleasures of the flesh. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, I have found out the sum, the end of the whole matter, is to fear God and to serve Him. After experiencing everything the world had to offer as the richest man on the planet and the wisest man that became a fool, he finally figured out the only thing that really matters is for me to live my life for the glory and honor of God. And Paul found out that he was, he was actually fighting against the God that he loved and that he thought he was serving. And he, trembling and astonished, fell on his face before the Lord and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Now you see, that's a good question for us. That's a good starting place for us. Lord, what do you expect from me? What do you want from me? How can I live my life in such a way that will bring you glory and honor and that I can be pleasing in your sight. And the Lord said unto him in the second part of verse 6, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told you what thou must do. Not what you should do or what you can do if you feel like it or if you want to, but what you must do. You see, God has a good and perfect and acceptable will for your life. May I say that that, that verse... Um, Romans chapter 12, I beseech thee therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, put to the test, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life is the exact same as it is for mine. Now, I'm not saying that, well, you're supposed to be, you know, a, a teacher or a welder, and I'm supposed to be, we don't have the same vocations and things like that, but 
the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for you and for me is this. That whatever we do, we do all as unto the Lord. And that we live a life that brings glory and honor to God. With every inch, every ounce, every fiber of our being, with every breath that we take, with every heartbeat that we have, we are living a life for the glory of God. And we're not putting ourselves on the front burner, but we're putting God on the throne of our heart. In verse 7 it says this, And the men which journeyed with Him, boy, they just stood speechless. Here this mighty, brilliant teacher of the Word of God that is standing so tall against these heretics that call themselves people of the way. And he's on his way to Damascus and we're following him. He's got a multitude with him to arrest and to kill and to persecute Christians. And all of a sudden, this man just crumbles to the ground. But a bright light from heaven shines on him. And they're amazed. Speechless, it says. Hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Paul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. It's not that there was no man around him. There were plenty of men standing around him. But the bright light from heaven had blinded the physical eyes of Saul in such a way that he couldn't see the people that were around him. Well, I'll tell you what, would to God that God would take away some of our sight of the things of the world around us that we are transfixed on. We were talking about, you know, this morning in Sunday school class, how little five and eight and ten and twelve-year-old kids got these computers called telephones in their hands and they have access to everything on the Internet. And we are literally paying for our children to burn their brains up with the garbage that's out there on that Internet. Would to God that we as parents would be parents instead of trying to be friends to our children. They don't need friends. They got plenty of friends. They need a parent that'll be a parent and will will take care of them and protect them from the things of the flesh and the things of the world and stand up, look them, stand flat-footed in front of them, look them in the eye and just say, "No. No, you can't do that. You can't go there. You can't have this." Why? Because it's not good for you. That's why. And the things that Paul was doing, he didn't realize it. He thought he was pleasing God. It wasn't good for him. God blinded the eyes of his, his face, but opened the eyes of his heart and gave him an understanding of the truth. And it says these people that he couldn't see, they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. For three days, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and, and to him the Lord uh, sent in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here am I, here my Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. I get a picture in my head of this man. He's just a little bald-headed, bow-legged, squint-eyed, hump-backed Jew that everybody in the country was afraid of. 
And now instead of being afraid of him, here, here this man is in Damascus with his eyes blinded and having just had a conversation on the road to Damascus with God. He's been there for three days. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drank it. He's still blind. He still can't see anything. And in his blindness, he's been spending all of his time talking to God. I can only imagine what that conversation must have been like. You think it was one-sided? <laughs> You think that maybe it was Paul? And, and, and I went and visited a lady the other day and I sat there and talked. Well, no, I didn't. I sat there and listened for about an hour. And I got a couple of words in edgewise. I kind of feel like that must have been how God felt with Saul of Tarsus sitting there. And Saul is just, just erupting all of this stuff out of his heart and out of his mind, realizing the life that he had led and the things that he had done counter to the cause of God. Thinking that everything that he was doing was going to be blessed by God. And we're going to rid the country of these heretics called Christian. And yet all of the time, now he realizes, God, I've been fighting against you. But to God, I could go back and undo the life that I've lived. It's too late. It is what it is. And now I am what I am. And here I sit, blind, hungry, thirsty, not knowing what tomorrow holds. But at the very least, now he knew who holds tomorrow. You look at verse 12. It says, Behold, he prayeth and hath seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias says, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute, Lord. I've heard a lot of stuff about this guy that you're talking about. How much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. Doesn't matter who he used to be. The only thing that counts now is who he is. And the same thing that God told Peter when the blanket came down with all the four-footed beasts in it. Rise up, kill Peter, eat. He says, oh no Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed through these lips. And the Lord said, don't you dare call anything that I have blessed unclean. And now here Ananias is saying, hey, I know that guy. He's a murderer. He's a killer. You, you, you don't know. Well, wait a minute. Who am I talking to? Don't you call anything or anybody that I have called unclean. You see, he was talking about people to Peter. He's talking about Peter, uh, talking about people to Paul as well. Or Ananias. Don't you call, don't you call the Gentiles, Peter, don't you call the Gentiles unclean and unworthy of grace and mercy? He's telling Ananias, don't you call Paul. He's going to be one of the greatest men that's ever walked the face of the earth for the cause of Christ. And the only reason that he's going to be what he's going to be is because I am who I am and I'm going to be living in him. My friend, may I say there are no great men of God. There are no great women, great people of God. There are only, there's only a great God of men. God is great. My friend, He chooses to use sinners like Gentiles and Jews and, and Peter and Paul and 
All of these men that we see in the Scripture, they are just sinful men that God has reached into their heart, into their mind, illuminated, regenerated, woke up and drew them to Himself, blinded the eyes of their flesh so the eyes of their soul might be opened, that they might submit and surrender every ounce, every inch, every fiber of their being to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that they might pick up the ropes of chapter three, uh, chapter 9 and verse 6. And then here in verse 16, look at, look at what it says. Well, verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, he's a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. Now we always look at Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, but here God himself says, No, he's going to be a, he's going to be a witness to everybody. To Gentiles, to kings, to Jews, to whoever it is that, that he comes across. My friend, that is a rope that you and I have been given by God. The same rope that he gave to the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. Doesn't matter who they are, red, yellow, black, or white, smart or ignorant, free or bond, doesn't matter. You look at what it says in verse 16, and I will show him how great things he must suffer. Suffer for my name's sake. You know what we don't want to do? We don't want to suffer. We, we don't think Christians today in, in the economy of the world that we live in, in America, the greatest nation on the face of the earth, there shouldn't be any suffering on our part. We've got everything that we could possibly want. But my friend, it's suffering by separating ourselves from some of those luxuries in order that we might bring ourselves into submission to the will, the way, the word of God, that we might be used by Him for His glory and honor and not for our pleasure. Because sometimes I think that we just get our crosshairs just a little off target. And we think that it's all about us rather than being all about him. And Ananias says, fine. Okay. I'll go where I'm sent. I'll, I'll stay where I'm put. I'll give what I got. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do, Lord. But I, I'm telling you, you, you don't know this guy's heart. I, I've seen him. I've seen him in action. I know what he's capable of. And in verse 17, Ananias went his way. Whose way? His way or God's way? God's way. He submitted his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says, God, whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you send, I'll go. I'll be what you want me to be. And in verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto me on the way uh, as thou camest, hath sent me that thou might receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and received sight forthwith immediately and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat after three days of no food, no water, no light, no, no vision, no sight, just prayer. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he was and is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Whoa, wait a minute now, is, is this not he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither 
For that intent, the purpose that He came here was to kill us, that He might bring them bound under the chief priest. But Saul increased the more in strength. And the more he increased in strength, the more he confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving, proving that this is the very Christ. My friend, if you were pressed in a corner, by someone that was looking for the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. Would you know enough Scripture? Would you know enough of the Word of God, the will of God, the way of God, the plan of God, to be able to convince the way that it says Saul did, Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this was the very, very Christ. Could you prove it? Or could you say, well, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I've been told. This is what... Listen. Hereby do we know that we know Him. We can know. It's not a hope so, think so, maybe so thing. And here Saul of Tarsus is, hadn't even got his name converted to Paul yet. He just lost the scales from his eyes and got his vision back. He's been three days with no food and no water. And now he follows the disciples for just a few days, listening to what it was that they were saying. And now all of a sudden, he knows enough of the Old Testament from being a Pharisee and a Jew that he's able to go into the synagogues and prove the deity of Jesus Christ to the Jews who hate Him. My friend, we, we need to get a hold of some of those ropes, amen, to be able to pull in the same direction with the same power and with the same strength of a Saul of Tarsus that became a Paul. Verse 23, it says this, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill Him. You see, they hated him. They loved him. He was their hero. He was the one going around and arresting Christians and throwing them in prison and having them murdered and stoned. And now all of a sudden, this, this what they thought was a mighty man of God had all of a sudden lost his mind. And he'd become a heretic. And he was worthy of death. The world looks at us the exact same way. That is, if we are a threat to him. You know what I found out? Church ain't much of a threat to the world anymore. We, we don't have enough power to crank a motorcycle for a ant. Wouldn't run it halfway around a BB. Powerless. Because we have no commitment, no dedication, no... no well, we, well I, I have faith. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they'll do as well. But the devil also believes and trembles. You can believe in Jesus and go to hell. But it's believing in Him to the point that you submit and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And here it is. These, these supposedly pillars of Judaism are coming against Saul of Tarsus their hero, to kill him now. And verse 25 says, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. It's an amazing 
amazing story. That a man that could come from such a background as Saul of Tarsus. That a man that could come from such a background as your pastor. The lifestyle that I used to live was horrendous. It wasn't, it wasn't even, it was worse than Saul of Tarsus. Because at least what he was doing, he was doing out of a zeal and a love for God. What I was doing was out of a zeal and a love for the flesh and the things of the world. And yet God reached into my heart, eliminated my mind, regenerated my soul, drew me to Himself and called me. Now I've been 35 years. And 30 of that year standing behind pulpits preaching the Word of God. Only God can do that in a man's life like Saul of Tarsus or Mark Richardson or you or anybody else. Because all of sin comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the forgiveness of God that Scotty talked about for the past three nights. By the way, if you weren't here, you missed some of the best preaching that I've heard in years. Even from, from Scotty McDowell. He preached on forgiveness all three nights. And he built on it every night. And he talked about our forgiveness for one another based upon the forgiveness that we have received from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we were unworthy sinners. God had mercy on us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more should we as sinners have forgiveness for other sinners who are like-minded like us, with us? But you know, I, I thought about this, this brilliant man, and he, he was brilliant. He, he sat at some of the feet of the most intelligent teachers that the world knew at that time. And he himself became a teacher of teachers. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Incredible. And here they are, he's converted, and he's preaching and winning people to the Lord, and the Jews hate him so bad, they're going to kill him. Now the disciples are worried about him, and they're saying, what in the world? The, the hero of the Jewish faith has now become our hero, and they're trying to kill him. What can we do to save his life? So they come up with a plan. They've got these big walls around the city and on the top of the walls, sometimes are houses, sometimes even made into the walls. The walls were so wide, you could ride chariots of horses around the top of the wall. And they were huge things. And they had houses built in them with windows looking on the outside. They took him in one of the houses. They got a long rope because it's a long way down to the ground. They got a basket, tied the rope to the basket, put Saul of Tarsus in the basket, and they let the rope over the edge and they're letting him down maybe hundreds of feet to the ground because they're laying wait at the gates as soon as they see him they're going to kill him they're letting him down they're letting him down they're letting him down and I'm thinking what in the world is this brilliant guy in the basket thinking is he coming up with you know the doctrines of grace is he coming up with all of these these theologies that you find in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and, and all of the things that he wrote and he's, he's being you know enlightened, illumined by the Spirit of God. You know what I think it was, he was thinking when he was being let down in the basket by that rope? I, I bet he was thinking, man, I hope they don't let go of the rope. I think that a lot of people ought to be thinking the same thing about the church today. 
That some of those ropes that God gave us, like in verse 6 and in verse 16, whatsoever things you must suffer for my name's sake, and that I'm going to tell you the things that you must do. And the things that we must do is to pick up those ropes of faith and start pulling in the same direction. And now the church has let go of the ropes. I believe that we are literally plummeting to our death. Not only as, as individual Christians in our personal lives. Not only as you know, autonomous churches that are separated from the, you know, the conglomerates and the conventions. But we are, are autonomous. We get to, to live and to teach and to be and to think and to do as we as a church think we ought to. Nobody can tell us what to do. And we as individuals have let go of ropes. We as churches have let go of the ropes. But even the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know if you've been seeing what's on the news about all the turmoil that's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, but I'll tell you what, we've let go of some ropes. And it is plummeting. Men on the internet, on the Southern Baptist Convention websites, they're worried, they're praying, they're scared. They should be. They should be. Because there's not been enough preaching from behind the pulpits of the Southern Baptist Convention and the local churches around this country to have any impact in the world that we're living in. And the reason is, it starts behind the pulpit in the preaching of the Gospel, and then it winds up in the pews of the people that are listening to what's being preached. And there's so much liberal garbage that's coming out from behind the pulpit that nobody out there has any idea of what the truth of the Word of God teaches. That we are supposed to surrender, raise the white flag, submit everything that we are to everything that He is. And the only time that we do that or that we as the churches of America are willing to do that is on a Sunday morning for 30 minutes to an hour and then we live the rest of our lives as though there is no God. I'm telling you that it's taking its toll not only on our families and our individual lives, it's taking a toll on our churches, it's taking a toll on our state, it's taking a toll on our nation. And we see the results of it all over the television, all over the newspapers, everywhere we go. Well, there's some things that I believe are those ropes, and I want to share those for just a minute. Things that we shouldn't do and things that we should do. Things that we have been doing that we should stop. Things that we should be doing that we should start. Because we haven't been doing. Some of the things that we shouldn't let go of. What are some ropes that God has given us as Christians? As the body of believers? As an individual? As the head of my home and my house? As the father? And by the way, fathers, Father's Day's coming up. I'll get more on this later. But we are the high priest of our families. We should be the leaders. Spiritual leaders. We've become the spiritual followers if we're following anything at all. We're not following Christ. A lot of men, and I'm not saying all, so don't feel like I'm, you know, got you in the crosshairs of a high-powered rifle. I'm just backing up, pulling both triggers on a sawed-off shotgun. If it hits you, it hits you. If it don't, then amen. 
But if we're following anybody, we, a lot of men are following their wives. I know men that were Baptists when they got married, and after they got married, they become Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian or something else. Why? Well, because that's what my wife was, and I wanted to go with her. She should go with you. I didn't hear an amen in the house. But that's what the Word of God says. That the Word of God says that we as the husbands, as the head of the household, are the high priest of the family, and we should be leading, not following. And we as men should take up that rope again and start being the men that God has called us to be. Not only that, but we should be the high priest not only in church attendance, but in prayer, home Bible study, witnessing, worrying about... How many many of you worry about your testimony? Am I going to tarnish it? Am I going to dampen it? Am I going to morrow it? Am I going to mess up something in my life that now God can't use me the way that I want to be used by God? Well, what the problem is is that we really don't want to be used by God. Because then we are accountable. My friend, I want you to know something. We're accountable anyway. We're not going to be accountable for just the things we do. We're going to be accountable for the things that we should have done and did not do. About our language, about our first love. Boy, the book of Ephesians or the church of Ephesians in Revelation chapter 1. And I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You remember the love that you had for the Lord Jesus Christ when you bent the knee and bowed the head and surrendered your heart and your life to Him? You fell in love with Christ and out of love with sin and out of love with the world. And you, you received Him as Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. And I want to live my life in a way to please the Lord. And now we've lost our first love. The first love that we had for Christ, I think that we've gone back to the love that we had prior to Christ. Maybe a little bit further back in history of our love. That's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. By the way, Some things that we should tighten up on and and grab back a hold uh, of the rope is is our family, our our downtime. We we as husbands, we spend so much time at work and doing the things to put food on the table and clothes on the backs that we really don't take time just to spend with our wives and our children and our grandchildren. I'm in my... Going on my third week now of retirement. And I'm starting to like it better and better. I have more time. I've visited people that I haven't visited in 10, 15 years. Some of them are my family. Isn't that sad? That's a sad testimony. That I have a sister and people that live right up here on Lake Bruin. Man, I don't have time to visit my family here. I can't drive all the way. I can't go over to Converse and see an aunt that, you know, I can tell she's not going to be here much longer. I should have been going over, spending time. I I just ain't got time. That's what we tell ourselves. Brother, we better make time before we lose the people that we love. Well, things that we should let go. Those are things we shouldn't. You know, let go of 
church attendance, prayer, Bible study, all of those things. But some of the things we should. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Wherefore seeing that we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run the race with patience that is set before us. We have a race to run. And my friend, if we don't set aside some of those weights, some of those sinful things in our lives, the sinful things which doth so easily beset us. What, what, is, what is the sin that so easily besets you? Now, I'm not asking for you to raise your hand and tell me, but I'm asking you to search your heart and your mind. Because then you say, well, I don't know. Well, then put your hand over your eyes, grab a dart, and just throw it. I'll guarantee you, you'll hit it the first time. You know. You know what it is that keeps you from being what God would have you to be. We know where it is that we need to let go of some things of the flesh, let go of some things of the world. Unnecessary things. Things that weigh us down and slow us down that are of absolute no spiritual benefit whatsoever. And that if I got rid of that baggage, I know I would be better off spiritually. My friend, what is it that you love about those things that you're unwilling to let go? Hebrews 3 and 14 says this, For we are made partakers with Christ if we hold the beginning of our faith in confidence, steadfast unto the end. You see, the beginning of our faith when we fell in love with Christ and surrendered our life, we should hold that steadfast with confidence, the Bible says, unto the very end. Because I'm telling you that if, if we wind up crossing the desert of sin, coming to the Jordan River and wanting to cross over into the promised land, and we have lost our love for God and Christ and the Word of God and the things of God, Remember Moses? He jumped up on that rock and he smote that rock the second time. God told him to smite it the first time. That rock was Christ, the Bible says. And Christ was smitten once for our sins. Moses got mad, jumped up on the rock and smote it the second time. Messed up God's painting. He didn't get to cross over into the promised land. He died on the other side of the Jordan from the promised land. My friend, what is it that's going to separate us from Christ? Separate us from the things of God. Don't let go of the rope. Uh, hold on to it, my friend, with both hands and with all of your heart. Because there is nothing in this world that is worth more than your fellowship and relationship to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us. God, to be here in your house this morning, thank you for the messages of forgiveness. God, help us to forgive ourselves for the slackness in the ropes that we've been towing on and sometimes just the outright letting go of them in our lives. Help us, God, to rededicate, recommit our lives, to, to be revived, in our spirits, in our commitment, our love for you. And we'll give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.